Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm Season 3 Podcast Case and Campaign Update. My name is Nikki Rowley and I am part of the podcast team. On the legal front, unfortunately, we are still waiting for a decision from the Criminal Cases Review Commission regarding the submissions which were made to them on the 10th of March 2021. Although it is frustrating, we do anticipate that we will have more information regarding the status of the review in the near future. You may recall that last month we spoke about the less than satisfactory response that Essex Police had made in September 2022 regarding a legal complaint which has been ongoing since 2020. The complaint was against two key police officers and their actions in the case, including the destruction of case material. These issues in the complaint and the lack of action by Essex Police to address, let alone investigate, any of the complaints has resulted in an appeal being lodged with the Independent Office for Police Complaints, the IOPC. The timescale for a response from the IOPC is currently unknown. However, we will bring you the news as and when we receive a response. Moving on to the campaign news. We are always busy researching and script writing for the forensic podcasts, as well as preparing presentations for the monthly Zoom meetings we hold for supporters. If you have not attended one of these meetings yet and are a member of our Justice Group on Facebook, please try to come along as they are a great way for members of our community to learn new evidence, listen to guest speakers and ask any questions they may have. If you are not yet a member of the group, you can find us on Facebook under the name Jeremy Bamber Justice Group. You may also not be aware that we have a TikTok account on which short videos on specific case facts are uploaded each weekday. Please search for Justice, the number four, Jeremy Bamber on TikTok. So far, the videos that we have posted have attracted over half a million views. You may have seen the recent article in the Mail on Sunday which hinted at fresh evidence which has been submitted to the CCRC. Unfortunately, much as we would love to expand on this issue, we have to allow the CCRC time to review and consider the facts of this matter before we can do so. But we can assure you that the full facts will be in the public domain in due course. We were thrilled to have been invited to represent Jeremy, the campaign and Jeremy's friends and supporters at the United Against Injustice Conference in Liverpool on the 29th of October. The event was a huge success and we were made to feel very welcome. It was great to be able to catch up with friends of the campaign whom we have known for many years, as well as meeting new people who were either fighting their own injustices or those of friends and loved ones. Our patrons, Michelle Diskin-Bates and Dennis Eady, were also at the event, as well as many of Jeremy's supporters, who had come along for the first time. I think everyone will agree the whole day was empowering and informative. We will be releasing a podcast on our presentation shortly. Today's podcast gives the facts regarding Jeremy's first application for appeal made following his trial and the 10-2 majority verdict. Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast season three. This episode discusses the first post-trial application for appeal made by Jeremy and his legal representatives, Kingsley Napley solicitors. You may have read in books and in the media content which states Jeremy Bamber makes fourth appeal application or 
Jeremy Bamber has had countless appeals, each one of which has failed. But this is very far from the truth. At the time of writing this presentation, Jeremy has had a single full appeal hearing which took place in October 2002. However, sadly, this appeal was lost. New submissions were made to the Criminal Cases Review Commission on the 10th of March 2021, and we believe that the fresh evidence they contain will trigger a second, and this time successful, hearing in the Court of Appeal. Today, we set out the grounds of appeal made to the Court shortly after Jeremy's trial, as well as the evidence used at that time by the defence. It is important to explain that very few witness statements and court transcripts were available to the defence at that time. In short, all that could be challenged was the evidence presented at trial and the assertions made to the jury by the judge during his summing up. To give some background, at the end of every Crown Court trial, the convicted prisoner has two options open to them. They can challenge the sentence the judge handed down to them and have the option, where a jury has returned a guilty verdict, to appeal the conviction. The law also dictates that he or she can appeal against their conviction, sentence or both, irrespective of whether or not they pleaded their innocence. However, the application has to be submitted speedily, as there is only a 28-day window in which this can be lodged from the date of the conviction. On very infrequent occasions, a time extension can be requested if the appellant has a valid reason. The process is the same no matter what the convicted person is appealing against, and an application must be made for permission for leave to appeal for a single judge to consider. If the single judge refuses the appeal, the convicted person then has a right to renew the application and ask a full court of two or usually three judges to consider the application again and decide whether to grant permission for appeal. And so, to Jeremy's case. Following his conviction by a 10-2 majority, he immediately requested to see his lawyers regarding an appeal, and days later arrangements were made for them to see him at Wormwood Scrubs Prison regarding an application. The first of the team to visit was Paul Terzian, the solicitor who had represented Jeremy alongside Geoffrey Rivlin QC, Jeremy's barrister at trial, and later, that same day, Rivlin arrived. Jeremy expressed his concern to Tirzian that not all the points in his favour had been explored at trial, and that if a different approach had been taken, it was probable that Julie Mugford would have admitted that she was lying in her evidence. Jeremy also stated that the blood in the silencer could have either been planted or had belonged to someone other than Sheila, and these possibilities had not been explored. Neither Jeremy nor the campaign had any awareness until years after the 2011 disclosure of documents that Robert Bowflower, who was present when a sound moderator was discovered in the gun cupboard, had exactly the same blood and enzyme components as Sheila. With that in mind, the degree of insight Jeremy had regarding the sound moderator issues was extraordinary. Jeremy told Terzian that although he was happy with Kingsley Napoli as a firm, he was not happy with Rivlin conducting an appeal. No surprise, considering the complete lack of effort on Rivlin's part in questioning witnesses and how he had on numerous occasions throughout put helpful words into the prosecution witnesses' mouths when they struggled for answers during his cross-examination. Also, Rivlin's failure 
to pursue the issue of the blood in the moderator being a match for Robert Bowflowers, a fact that he was well aware of, is utterly inexplicable. Indeed, Rivlin had conceded that Jeremy was guilty before the trial began by signing a document called the Agreed Facts, which stated Jeremy had killed five members of his family. Jeremy felt that a new QC, and not Geoffrey Rivlin, would have a different approach. He believed that fresh eyes may find evidence previously overlooked. Indeed, Jeremy's distrust of Rivlin has since been validated. For example, at the time, Jeremy had no knowledge that prior to the closing speeches at trial, a key issue was raised by the prosecution QC, Anthony Arledge. This was a fact which we only discovered in 2019, contained in notes made by the prosecution junior, Andrew Monday, during trial. Arledge raised a point of law with the judge to propose that Rivlin should question Bowflower to ask directly if he had lied to inherit as a result of Jeremy's conviction. Arledge also set out that Bowflower should be asked if he had put blood in the moderator. Rivlin stated that there was no point doing this and the judge agreed. As a consequence, Bowflower was never asked these two important questions. The judge must have known about the discrepancies in the blood evidence, otherwise he would not have understood the reason for Arledge's proposed question. And yet Justice Drake continually referred to the blood being a match for Sheila and no one else. The fact that this surreal situation arose, where the prosecuting counsel was proposing a line of questioning that would have helped the defendant, only for this to be firmly dismissed by the defence and the judge highlights just how unfair and biased this trial was against Jeremy. Back to the visit with Jeremy at Wormwood Scrubs, Terzian agreed that a new team of lawyers would perhaps find fresh evidence, but insisted that Rivlin would be the best person for the job, as he had been involved since the outset. Jeremy still wasn't convinced and insisted that he needed to hear what Rivlin had to say about the appeal before he made up his mind. Later, Rivlin and his colleague, Barrister Lawson, arrived and Terzian outlined the situation to them, including the concerns Jeremy had raised. Rivlin advised Jeremy, We had looked at every conceivable angle and that a new person or advisor could only look at the case as presented in court. He continued, The only conceivable grounds of appeal are if prejudicial evidence was admitted that should not have been or that there had been a misdirection by the judge on the law, or that he had misdirected himself in the summing up. Therefore, Jeremy followed the advice given, and the application was submitted to the Court of Appeal Criminal Division on the 20th of November 1986, well within the 28-day time permitted. Jeremy's team clarified that they could pursue issues in respect of the summing up, and Rivlin stated that there were three questions the judge asked the jury which were grossly prejudicial in favour of the prosecution. These questions were, one, did they believe Julie Mugford? Two, had the appellant received, as he asserted, a telephone call in the middle of the night from his father saying that Sheila Caffell had gone berserk and had a gun? Three, were they sure that Sheila Caffell had not murdered her family? and then shot herself. The submission went on to state, 
The answers to any or all of those questions would, the jury were told, lead directly to their reaching a verdict. If the answer to question three was yes, the appellant was guilty. If it was no to question two, likewise. If Julie Mugford was telling the truth, the appellant was guilty. Although the jury were cautioned against relying on her evidence alone, a separate point Rivlin considered should be included was that the judge had influenced the decision of the jury by giving his own personal views. This included his personal opinion regarding the order of the deaths and included a complaint that he failed to remind the jury of the evidence of the pathologist, Dr. Venesis. Rivlin stated that this had resulted in the defence case not being put properly. It was decided that these issues would make up the core framework of the submissions and with a certain degree of reluctance on his part, Jeremy decided to follow the advice and agreed that Rivlin could act on his behalf. On the 8th of April 1987, Jeremy's leave to appeal was rejected by the single judge, the Honourable Mr Justice Coldfield, who stated that he considered that the summing up of the trial, Judge Drake was admirable and superb and that he was confident that the full court would commend and not criticise the summing up. Not satisfied, Jeremy's team immediately renewed the application to the Royal Courts of Justice. The grounds were summarised to be as follows. The principal submissions he makes are three in number, with a gather-all fourth. They are these. First of all, that the summing up was weighted unfairly against the applicant that the judge unjustly diminished the applicant's case and the evidence in support of it and neglected to remind the jury of important points upon which the applicant sought to rely. The judge, he submits, repeatedly and unjustly ridiculed the applicant's case using extravagant and forceful language in so doing. Thirdly, the judge produced a theory or speculation of his own as to the order of the killings, which undermined the whole of the defence case, a speculation which had not been previously canvassed and which could not, in Mr Rivlin's submission, have been correct. Finally, the gather-all's submission, that the applicant, accordingly, did not have a fair trial. On Monday 20th of March, 1989, Lord Lane, the then Lord Chief Justice of England, Mr Justice Roche and Mr Justice Henry delivered their conclusions on whether the grounds were sufficient to refer the case to the Court of Appeal. Their findings were presented in just 22 pages of documentation, which included a summary of the case. The first point addressed was in relation to a passage the judge had made in his summing up, which said... Is there anything at all, for example, to suggest and show when it was that those two little boys were shot in their beds? The hard fact is, clearly from the evidence, they were shot in their beds. There are other facts which you may readily accept and which have not been disputed. June Bamba appears to have been shot first in bed because of the bullet marks in the pillow. It seems that she got out of bed and walked round to the other side of the bed because of the blood pattern on the floor. Well, Mr Arledge then puts a speculation. Was she going round because she thought the bedroom telephone was still there? Well, I would say. Or was she going round 
because Sheila was dead on the floor there at that time. That is an equally credible speculation. But they are speculations and no more. Rivlin pointed out that no one questioned the fact that Sheila had died last. And by making this statement to the jury, the judge was, according to Rivlin, putting forward an untested speculation. Crime scene photographs show that droplets of blood were found underneath the body of Sheila, which, when tested, showed that the blood had originated from June. Therefore, it was impossible that Sheila could have been dead on the floor at the time June was in that area of the room. However, Lane Roche and Henry decided that the speculations made by Drake regarding the droplets of blood did nothing other than give his own hypothetical account of events, to which he had later stated, Well, it is a tempting thing to do, but I should caution you. I should advise you to be cautious about doing it because I think you will find that it is utterly impossible to be sure that any such theory is correct. I do advise to be cautious about trying to work out the exact series of events. Lane, Roche and Henry decided that the jury could have determined for themselves by looking at the photographs provided at the trial that droplets of June's blood went underneath the body of Sheila. They added that they had been advised this blood belonged to June and in their opinion, Drake had merely been advising them about the type of speculation they should avoid. It was, therefore, decided that this did not constitute misdirection and as such was rejected as a valid appeal point. The next issue to be addressed was the argument that Drake failed to remind the jury on important points in Jeremy's favour and specifically that he had admitted to remind them that Julie Mugford not only may have invented the alleged confession, sourcing her information from newspapers or from others, but that there were parts of the alleged confession which did not tally with the facts as they later became known. According to Mugford, Jeremy had told her that Sheila had a Bible on her chest. Although a Bible was found next to the body of Sheila, it was not recorded as being on her chest in the police witness statements. The defence suggested the information might have been communicated to Julie Mugford and then she repeated it to Anne Eaton as part of her bogus claims. In fact, the evidence now shows that it was DC Clark of Essex Police who first stated at Jeremy's cottage in the presence of Mugford and the relatives that a Bible had been found resting on Sheila's chest. It is very possible that Mugford discussed this with Anne Eaton at some stage during the investigation, although they both denied at trial that they had spoken about the Bible. Evidence disclosed in 2011 includes an admission made by DS Jones in 2002, which confirmed that he, Mugford and Eaton were in regular contact. It is also now a provable fact, not known at the time of these early submissions, that the Bible was moved by Essex police. Three of the six-man initial raid team, the first to see Sheila, told the post-trial Dickinson Inquiry in 1986 that when they were shown the crime scene photographs, Sheila was not in the same position as when they saw her. Not only was Sheila's head in a different position, but the Bible was 12 to 18 inches away from her at waist height. 
Unfortunately, this evidence was only discovered in the case material disclosed in 2011. The next issue in 1988 was regarding the evidence of Mugford, in that Jeremy had informed her the hitman admitted he had shot Neville seven times. This was the same figure that was reported in the press. However, this was not accurate because Neville was, in fact, shot a total of eight times. Rivlin argued that the trial judge had not thought it necessary to remind the jury of this discrepancy in evidence. The submissions also asked other questions regarding the trial evidence of Mugford and the discrepancies in it. Rivlin emphasised that the jury should have been reminded of these differences and that Drake omitted mentioning any during his summing up. The conflicting evidential issues were as follows. One, Mugford had alleged Jeremy told her Neville had put up a fight and that a violent struggle had taken place in the kitchen. Two, that she testified that Jeremy informed her that Sheila had been shot on the bed. Three, she also set out that the twins had been shot in their sleep and this information was reported in the press. Four, that the Crown had accepted MacDonald was not in any way involved as Mugford had alleged Jeremy had told her. Five, the assertion by her that Jeremy had instructed Matthew MacDonald to telephone him from the farm so, if it was checked, a call would have been received from that number by Jeremy. 6. The fact Mugford initially set out that a shotgun had been used in the crime. 7. That failure by the judge to remind the jury that the evidence given by Susan Battersby demonstrated the evidence given by Mugford was unreliable. Eight. Her allegation that after being collected on the morning of the 7th of August by the police, she had been told Jeremy may have been in a car accident. This evidence was also contradicted by Susan Battersby. And nine, that Mugford had explained that she had been in a conversation with Battersby after Jeremy had telephoned her in the early hours of the 7th of August. But Susan denied there had ever been such a conversation. Every single one of these listed anomalies were ignored and the three judges made no comment about them in their ruling. Also included in the submission was a list of the judges' comments about Mugford's performance in the witness box, that these were unfair to Jeremy's counsel and to the case. The passage the defence made the complaint about reads as follows. Is Mr Rivlin justified in complaining that she was a bad witness? Well, that is for you to decide. You may ask yourself, in view of the fact that she maintained her story throughout, that perhaps his true complaint is that he was unable, in the course of a full cross-examination, to get her wants to vary from the story she has always told. I put those matters for your consideration. I do not indicate your answers to them because that is your job and not mine. But I have already said to you that in this case, if you were asked to decide this case with no other evidence at all, other than that of Julie Mugford's, well, it would amount, because her evidence does amount, to an admission of guilt on the part of the defendant of his involvement in these murders. In their response to this allegation, the judges decided 
Those comments and the earlier comments that Mr. Rivlin, so the judge says, complained to you bitterly that she was an impossible witness to cross-examine, we do not consider to be in any way unfair. So again, there was a further aspect of the defence submission which was ultimately rejected. Next came the issue that Mugford sold her story to the News of the World. The wording in the ruling in relation to this was, Prior to Miss Mugford giving evidence, the defence were informed by the Crown in good faith and upon the basis of the Crown's inquiry that Miss Mugford had not sold, nor was it her intention to sell, her story to the press. She was not cross-examined in respect of any intent to profit from her story. In fact, immediately following the trial, a substantial article said to have derived from her information appeared in the popular press. During trial, a discussion was held between the prosecution, defence and Drake regarding the question of Mugford selling her story to the media and making this arrangement pre-trial. This would have been contempt of court if true. However, during trial, in a closed court, Drake instructed that there was no evidence of this taking place. As a result, neither counsel raised the issue again. Mugford was not questioned about this during her evidence, and at no stage did the jury get to hear about the deal. Lane, Roche and Henry concluded, As far as that is concerned, no doubt if any cross-examination on the line suggested had been directed to Miss Mugford, it is very doubtful whether it would have redounded to the benefit of the applicant, much more likely the reverse. We think that there is nothing in that ground. The reasons for this bold assertion by their lordships was not given. The evidence now proves a deal was in place pre-trial, and further, that immediately upon the verdict being announced, Mugford was already secured in a hotel room with police officers Jones and Bernard to give her story to the news of the world with a fee of £25,000 being paid by them upon completion. New evidence has recently come to light, which Jeremy was not privy to in 1988. In a letter to Mr Sullivan of the DPP's office dated 27th of November 1986, Kingsley Napley requested that full details of the contract entered into by Mugford and the News of the World newspaper should be disclosed. A reply was received dated 3rd of December 1986, in which Sullivan stated, you have asked for the details of the newspaper contract entered into by Miss Julie Mugford. The director is not privy to the arrangements made in this respect by Miss Mugford, and we are not able to assist you. Furthermore, any such arrangements have been made after the end of the criminal trial. This is a bizarre comment for Sullivan to make. If the DPP was not privy to the arrangement, and therefore the contract, how could it be stated that the arrangement was made after the trial? We now know this was not the case, as Mugford's solicitor admitted that he agreed to the offer made by the News of the World in December 1985, partly so that other media groups would then desist from chasing Mugford for her story. So, once again, Justice Drake got his rulings wrong on this matter. The final point, considered from the submissions, concerned the fact that Drake had failed to include sufficient detail in his summing up about Sheila's mental health and her alleged suicide. 
In response to this ground, the judges concluded, The fact is, in the judgment of this court, that the omissions complained of are nearly all, if not all, omissions of triviality, which could alone have caused no possible harm to the defence case. It is astounding they reached this conclusion, as Sheila's mental health issues were surely vital and central to the case. Lane, Roche and Henry raised the testimony from the defence expert, Dr Bradley, who had spoken of altruistic killings at the trial. Bradley had set out that these types of killings can take place by loving but unhinged parents or relations, and secondly, usually displayed the symptoms of overkill. It is believed that this conclusion of Bradley was owing to the number of shots fired into June, Neville, Nicholas and Daniel. A further point made was in relation to Bradley's suggestion of the possibility of ritual washing of hands after such crimes. He said this could have explained the low amount of lead on Sheila's hands, traces which the prosecution claimed should have been present if she had handled the cartridges and loaded the rifle. Rather than deal directly with the point, the judges instead deviated from the issue raised and changed the whole direction of their argument to raise the prosecution case of the apparent lack of blood on the soles of Sheila's feet and decided that all these matters referred to are speculative and in our judgment the judge was correct to omit reference to them when making his summing up. The complaint that he did not do it justice is unjustified. Had the evidence we have today been available at this time, both these issues could have been presented in a very robust manner. For instance, fresh evidence reveals that results from the hand swab tests were skewed and the jury were not provided with information regarding additional test results from the lab of the copper and iron levels, which matched those of the scientists who conducted comparison testing. These results supported the contention that Sheila must have handled the rifle and the bullets. In addition, enlargements of photographs disclosed in 2011 showed that the prosecution had been wrong to state that there was no blood present on Sheila's feet. The enlargements reveal that blood can be seen on Sheila's heel, instep, ball of the foot and the big toe of her left foot. No images have ever been disclosed of the sole of Sheila's right foot. This begs the obvious question, of why not? Does Sheila's right foot have blood contamination on the sole as her left one does? Both the hand swab deception and the blood contamination issues feature in separate podcasts. Under consideration next by the judge was a submission that raised doubts regarding the evidence which had been set out at the trial about the silencer and the struggle in the kitchen. The Crown's evidence from the forensic scientists Glynis Howard and Brian Elliott's demonstration in court of how they said Sheila could have shot herself was next to be reviewed. This evidence was omitted from the summing up. However, the judges reasoned that due to this being a physical demonstration, it would have remained in the minds of the jury and as such they didn't need reminding of it by the judge in his summing up of the evidence as he set out. Did Elliot and Howard show that she could have shot herself? I thought that they had concluded that it would be virtually impossible for her to have delivered the second lower shot herself. 
The implication being, therefore, that she wasn't responsible for either shot. Rivlin raised the issue that Drake had brought the attention of the jury to the fact that Neville was of substantial build and strength to Miss Caffell's slightness and frailty, the suggestion being that Rolf Bamber could have easily overpowered her, and emphasised that the judge failed to discuss medical evidence which showed Neville had been shot in the arm and face, and therefore these injuries may have explained why he had been unable to overpower Sheila. Rivelin also set out that although it was suggested at trial that the position of recovered cartridge cases raised the possibility that Neville may have sustained the wound to his lip on the first floor, it seemed unlikely as there was no trail of blood leading from upstairs into the kitchen. Therefore, Rivelin said, it was probable his wounds were all inflicted in the kitchen. The appeal judges reached the conclusion that even if the father had been wounded in the left arm, it would still have been possible for him to disarm the daughter, Sheila Caffell, even if he had been suffering from the wounds indicated. We do not think that the judge's failure to remind the jury specifically on that point was a proper matter of complaint. However, the fact is that Neville had a broken arm, rendering it unusable and was not simply wounded, which the judges failed to take into account nor did they consider that he had a gun pointed at him. Therefore, how would he have been expected to disarm his daughter? Why should this have been open to speculation anyway, as this was not evidentially credible, but merely hypothesis? In addition, not only can it now be shown that there was no blood of Neville's on the bedroom carpet, staircase, hallway carpet, or in the kitchen close to the door used to access it from the hallway, but also that the recovered bullet cases from upstairs matched the injuries received by all of the deceased who were discovered upstairs. The evidence shows at least 30 shots were fired during the incident and a number of bullet cases were unaccounted for, including three missing from the kitchen. A further submission complained about the way the judge summarised the key evidence regarding the timing of the telephone call made by Jeremy to Mugford. Rivlin complained that the judge failed to remind the jury that in Mugford's first statement made on the 8th of August 1985, she had stated the time of the call she received from Jeremy that alerted her that there was something wrong at the farm. Was it 3.30am? The appeal judges brushed this submission under the carpet as they stated she had been half asleep and much more cogent and specific evidence was given by others in the house who had been woken up by the telephone. It was tolerably clear that the call must have been made before the appellant had rung the police, which was a telling point in favour of the prosecution. They continued. Once again, we do not think the learned judge's summary of those particular pieces of evidence were in any way unfair to the appellant. The final submission dealt with the silencer and was set out in the ruling which stated this was, as already indicated, eventually found by a relative in the gun cupboard downstairs and in a box in a plastic bag with some unexpended rounds. As already indicated, it had traces of blood in the baffles, giving indication of Sheila's blood group. The point made by Rivlin is that, owing to the fact that the police had, to begin with, 
barked up the wrong tree and jumped to the conclusion that this was suicide by Sheila, having committed all these murders, insufficient investigation was made, with the result that someone may have removed the silencer from where it was originally and put it into the cupboard with the bullets in a plastic bag and in the box. Consequently, the points made by the prosecution about the position of that silencer in the cupboard were, it is suggested, invalidated. What is evident is that neither Rivlin nor the judge mentions at any time that the blood found on the baffle plates need not have necessarily belonged to Sheila. Forensic evidence was available the week prior to trial that the recovered blood and enzymes within the tiny flake of blood found between the first and second baffle plate by John Hayward on the 12th of September 85 was an exact match for Robert Bowflower, who stood to gain significant wealth as a result of Jeremy's conviction. This blood enzyme result also matched 8% of the UK population. Neither the prosecution, defence nor trial judge disclosed this vital information to the court, even though they were aware of it. Therefore, the jury never heard this key evidence. And it seems that the appeal judges were not privy to this information either. We have no doubt that had the jury been aware of this fact, then given their clear suspicions about Bowflower's motives and honesties, it would have been a major point in Jeremy's favour and would potentially have written off a significant part of the prosecution's case. Rivlin also raised that the defence had been put at a disadvantage by the prosecution in their failure to call a number of police officers to give evidence, thus preventing cross-examination of these witnesses. Rivlin expanded that these uncalled witnesses may have been able to provide evidence to determine if any officer at the scene had handled the silencer. The judges determined that Rivlin was wrong to make this criticism and stated, the prosecution are entirely at liberty to call whatever witnesses they think fit. As a result of a murder inquiry of this nature, before the matter ever gets to court, the prosecution inevitably have a huge number, a very large volume of written statements from anyone who might in any way be able to throw any relevant evidence on the case under investigation. The prosecution are entirely at liberty and under no obligation at all to call any of those witnesses. The huge number of witnesses, if they think that they will not further the case for the prosecution, or have no relevance, and the defence can call any of those witnesses that they wish to give evidence at the trial, and they can compel them to come to give evidence in the trial, even if they be police officers or a senior police officer in the case. In addition, the judges ruled that the lack of comments from Drake on this issue were unfortunate, but that additional statements would not have resulted in any different verdict and that Drake's comments had not impeded the case of the defence during the trial. In recent years, we have been able to establish that a far greater number of police officers attended the scene than Essex Police and the CPS have ever admitted to. Not only that, but the evidence reveals that 43 individuals entered the house prior to any crime scene photographs being taken 
and that for the most part, the statements made by these individuals still remain undisclosed. What did these officers see and include in their statements, which the Crown do not want the defence to know about? Did their evidence include detail of a silencer being recovered from the scene by DS Stan Jones on the 7th of August? We are now in a position to be able to prove that he did. The fact that two silencers and not one were recovered and both subjected to forensic examination and both were contaminated with blood and paint which increased over time undermines all the arguments Essex police have used to maintain that a single silencer featured in this case. This is not and never was the truth and Essex police and forensic scientists Howard, Elliot, Float and Fletcher who are known to have examined both silencers sometimes on the same day have deceived the defence, the Crown, the judge and jury, the Home Office, the various inquiries and the appeal judges and the CCRC since 1985. In conclusion, the judges who addressed the appeal application made the following decision. All in all, we have come to the conclusion there is no proper basis for the criticisms of this summing up made by Rivlin. There is nothing unsafe or unsatisfactory about this conviction. There is no material misdirection. Accordingly, this application must be refused. The hearing was ended and no referral was made. This refusal of leave to appeal was based on flawed logic, the ignoring of evidence favourable to Jeremy, and what appeared to be an overwhelming reluctance to criticise a fellow, albeit more junior judge. The evidence we have now shows how unsatisfactory this hearing was, but we believe that when the CCRC refers the case and it is heard in the appeal court in the near future, the proceedings will be much more robust and will concentrate on the mass of new evidence of Jeremy's innocence, unsafe conviction, perjury, corruption, and they will have no option but to quash the conviction. If you want to lend your support to Jeremy Bamber, you can write to him in the UK using the number A5352AC, HM Wakefield, 5 Love Lane, Wakefield, WF29AG, or see our website for details at www.jeremy-bamber.co.uk.